Welcome to Inviolable Voices, a podcast dedicated to exploring the mysteries behind our greatest literary works. Together, we'll discover the inner conflicts and adverse circumstances that help shape their authors. I'm your host, Nadia Padilla. Last week, I began to tell the story of Lady Mary Wortley Montague and Alexander Pope, two of the greatest 18th century English poets. They went from being close friends and artistic collaborators to bitter enemies who publicly denounced each other with shocking vehemence. This is quite tragic because both poets had been scarred physically and emotionally in eerily similar ways by the end of the first year of their friendship. As I mentioned in last week's episode, Lady Mary contracted smallpox in her 26th year, which left her face, previously famed for its beauty, scarred for life. Pope also had body image issues to deal with, although his situation was infinitely worse. He suffered from Pott's disease after the age of 12. Pott's disease is a form of tuberculosis that affects the bones, in Pope's case, his spine, instead of the lungs. Pope stopped growing at the age of 12, and over the course of his life, his spine was wrenched to one side and back, leaving him hunchbacked by his late teens and with severe respiratory problems by the time he became middle-aged. As if that wasn't bad enough, all of his adult life, Pope had to suffer from the emotional repercussions of this disability. He fell in love with many of the women he met and became friends with, and in many of his letters to his more worldly male acquaintance, he liked to pretend that he had an active sex life but he doesn't seem to have had much success in that department. In a moment of candor, he wrote in response to the praise of a close friend named John Carroll, quote, "'Tis certain the greatest magnifying glasses in the world are a man's own eyes when they look upon his person, this person meaning here, body. Yet even in those I appear not the great Alexander Mr. Carroll is so civil to, but that little Alexander the women laugh at. Lady Mary was also unlucky in love, and both occupied marginalized positions in their world. Lady Mary, because she was a woman, and Pope, because he was a Catholic, during years when many Englishmen and women viewed Catholics as potential terrorists and subversives. Ultimately, these disadvantages seem not to have brought them together, but to have pulled them apart. After they became enemies, neither hesitated to attack the perceived weaknesses of the other. They slipped into the customs of their time. Both lived in a world so divided, so riven by conflict, both ideological and just plain petty, that bickering became second nature for even the most well-meaning souls alive. Join me today to hear all about Pope's life before Lady Mary and one of the messiest literary battles in history.
It's kind of a miracle we have Alexander Pope at all. Pope's mother, born Edith Turner, married Alexander Pope Sr. after she turned 41, by which point she must have been sure she was going to be a spinster for life. Pope Sr. was a linen merchant and a widower with one surviving daughter named Magdalene, and he was three years younger than Edith. When Edith gave birth on May 21st, 1688, to her first and only child, she was one month short of turning 45. When both survived, it must have seemed a little short of miraculous. Pope grew up in London, adored and idolized by parents, nurse, and his aunts. Pope worshipped his parents his entire life. His father was a conscientious, thoughtful man, honest and devout, and his mother a friendly, loving woman who often received visits from Pope's friends, even when he wasn't staying with her. This fairly ordinary English family was quite out of the ordinary in a key way, though. They were Catholic. Both parents had chosen their faith. Pope Sr., who was the son of an Anglican minister, had converted to Catholicism in adulthood, and Edith had grown up in a Yorkshire family with ten daughters, of which five had ended up Protestant and five Catholic. The religious preference of the family made them part of a persecuted minority in England. Catholics were feared and hated in England because they were believed to be mindless supporters of political tyranny, of which the greatest symbol to the English was the Pope, because he expected all Catholic nations to submit to his will. This is also, incidentally, probably the reason America has only had one Catholic president. During the 17th and 18th centuries, English Protestants felt themselves to be always under the threat of a Catholic attack and of the loss of the constitutional liberties granted to them by the Magna Carta and protected by Parliament. At some moments, their fears were justified. Had the gunpowder plot from 1605, for example, been successful, a group of English Catholics really would have managed to take out the government with the explosives they had planted under the House of Lords, one of the Houses of Parliament. But the vast majority of what Catholics were accused of during these years was completely bogus. When the city of London burned down in 1665, for example, many people in the country claimed Catholics had started the blaze which was a completely unfounded accusation. It became such a widespread belief that a pillar was erected in London with a plaque claiming, quote, here by the permission of heaven, hell broke loose upon this Protestant city from the malicious hearts of barbarous papists. This is what the English contemptuously called Catholics. At the age of 45, Pope would himself describe the column as acting, quote, like a tall bully because it lifts the head and lies. The vast majority of English Catholics, as is so often the case in situations like this, were peace-loving people like the Pope family, who were loyal patriots completely unlikely to engage in any subversive activity. 
The situation for English Catholics became kind of complicated after the Glorious Revolution, though, when Parliament kicked out the Catholic James II, who had inherited the throne legitimately, and asked his Protestant son-in-law, William, and his daughter, Mary, to rule in his place. After this, many Englishmen and women felt that they had been deprived of their rightful rulers, James II and his son, and by mid-century, his grandson, especially after a new ruling family was brought in in 1714, the Hanoverians. James II's son and grandson each led rebellions during the first half of the century, and many English Catholics and, more generally, Tories, the political party that Pope adhered to, took part. Catholics were always suspected of being Jacobites during these years. Jacobites were supporters of James II or his descendants. It's hard to blame English Catholics for wanting to better their situation, though. The rulers after the Glorious Revolution had clamped down on Catholics with a vengeance. It became illegal for Catholics to inherit or purchase property, so that it was almost impossible for Catholics to become powerful landowners. They were also not allowed to attend university, so that it became difficult for them to gain entry into most of the powerful professions in the country. Their homes were subject to search at any moment, under the least suspicion that they possessed firearms. They couldn't even own a horse worth more than five pounds. When Alexander Pope was four, his parents sold their London home and moved out to Hammersmith, presumably because of the new laws forbidding Catholics from living within a 10-mile radius from Hyde Park Corner in London. Even away from London, he received a well-rounded education in the arts. His mother and her sisters seemed to have been devotees of the arts. One sister married a painter, and Pope's mother seems to have had an interest in painting, which also became a lifelong interest for Pope. Pope's father seems to have set little Alexander to writing verses as a child. Edith later recalled that Alexander Sr., quote, was pretty difficult in being pleased and was used often to send him back to new turn them. These are not good rhymes, he would say. The popes managed to find a Catholic boarding school so that little Alexander could continue his education. Quite the achievement, since Catholic schoolmasters were prohibited from teaching and were threatened with prison for life if they broke these rules. Pope didn't think much of the only formal education he ever received. He was forced to leave the first school he attended at the age of eight or nine after his first year for writing, quote, a satire on some faults of his master. It seems that one of his classmates tattled on him and the poem was found in the little boy's pocket. This incident suggests that Pope's later propensity for satire was already well in place. It also suggests, though, that Pope's later pugnacious temperament developed in him from an early age as well. Pope would claim later that he felt that he hadn't learned much at school and must have been relieved when, in 1700, after three years at a new school he liked marginally better than his first one, his parents brought him home. From this point on, Pope was in charge of his own education 
and he applied himself to it with the fearsome tenacity that, in his later years, allowed him to write some of his greatest works while living with debilitating illness. He moved with his parents to Benfield, a farming community in Berkshire close to Windsor Forest. He would later assert that these years were the happiest of his life. He read voraciously. His half-sister commented to his earliest biographer that he did, quote, nothing but write and read. And he also spent a lot of time outdoors. But shortly after he arrived back home, his illness began. No one knew what caused Pott's disease then, so Pope always believed that his excessive study had brought it about. By the age of 16 or 17, an early biographer who knew Pope claimed that he had told him that the disease had, quote, reduced him in four or five years' time to so sad a state of health that after trying physicians for a good while in vain, he resolved to give way to his distemper and sat down calmly in full expectation of death in a short time. This must have been a terrifying time for Pope and his parents. Apart from the cramping of his spine and his stunted growth, Pope likely also experienced bouts of high fever, numbness in his legs, eye inflammation, a cough, and abdominal pain almost constantly during these five years. Around the age of 17, the disease went into remission, as it did at times when he was younger, and Pope was able to begin to lead a more normal life for a few years. Pope spent his late teens and early 20s putting all of the things that he had read to use in his own writing. During these years, he sought out and befriended older, more experienced men of letters and politics like William Witcherly, the author of the 1675 hit comedy, The Country Wife, whom he asked for advice on writing and life. His letters and people's reminiscences of Pope during this time suggest that he was an earnest, lively youth who often liked to pretend to a worldliness he really didn't have at this point. He seems always to have been aware of the impression he might make on Londoners. He would show up in the big city dressed like, as he put it, a, quote, country putt with disabilities impossible not to notice. And he would overcompensate by turning on the charm to an excessive degree. Pope aspired to be as open and relaxed as his father, but must have found it impossible not to be self-conscious when enemies would describe him as a, quote, hunchback toad and, quote, a little aesopic sort of animal in his own cropped hair, as opposed to a wig, and dress agreeable to the forest, aka the country, he came from. Even his friends called him things like, quote, poor little Pope, dear little great friend, and the little nightingale. Well, this little nightingale managed to write the most significant works of poetry of the early 1710s. His poem on literary criticism, called An Essay on Criticism, was published on May 15, 1711, when Pope was one week shy of turning 23. And within a few months, one of the most influential newspapers in the country was claiming that it was, quote, a masterpiece in its kind. This poem is clearly a young man's work, 
Pope cartwheels exuberantly through the poem with an agility that leaves me, and I suspect many other readers, breathless. His feel for language was, even by his early 20s, virtuosic, something that becomes especially evident when we consider how many of the lines from this poem have entered our common language. Lines like, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. To err is human, to forgive divine. A little learning is a dangerous thing. His genius would gain more breadth and depth as it matured, as Charles Dickens's does after his first novel, The Pickwick Papers, but there's a vital spark in both that diminishes as well. When Pope published another long poem, Windsor Forest, in 1713, his reputation was secure. The readers of London agreed that, as a young man put it that year, quote, our Mr. Pope was one of the greatest geniuses that this nation has bred. Pope had only just turned 25. An essay on criticism shows one of the deepest contradictions of his nature. Pope criticizes the writers of his day for their eagerness to tear each other down, but he, not much later in the poem, takes a pretty direct aim at a leading literary critic, John Dennis, describing him as such a doctrinaire critic that he is, quote, like some fierce tyrant in an old tapestry. Pope would, all of his life, struggle between the demands of his genuine warmth and kindness, which was always looking for a chance to express itself, and his sensitivity to insult, which made it very difficult for him to forgive and very easy for him to slip into aggression against others. Thus, during the years that Pope wrote this poem attacking Dennis, he also became friends with writers and intellectuals closer to his own age who were also living in London, the young men who made up the Scriblerus Club, whom Lady Mary Wortley Montague would befriend in 1715. Pope had kind of a genius for friendship. He managed to maintain a close friendship with Jonathan Swift, the staunch Tory who penned Gulliver's Travels, even when the two had been separated for years. He often claimed, in fact, that friendship was the most important aspect of his life. To his very close friend John Gay, the author of the play The Beggar's Opera, he would write, quote, Nature, temper, and habit from my youth made me have but one strong desire. All other ambitions, my person, education, constitution, religion, etc., conspired to remove far from me. That desire was to fix and preserve a few lasting, dependable friendships. He managed more than a few of these. While he had many enemies in his life, none of the intimate friendships he formed ever failed, except for his friendship with Lady Mary. This, of course, makes what happened between him and Lady Mary all the more baffling. He felt sufficiently close to her in March of 1716 to have been the gallant avenger of a wrong she had suffered. After her eclogues, a series of satires fell into the hands of an unscrupulous publisher named Edmund Curl. He published them almost immediately under the name Court Poems and attributed them to John Gay or Alexander Pope or a, quote, lady of quality in other words, a gentlewoman. 
This was obviously meant to implicate Lady Mary Wortley Montague. By this point, as we saw in the last episode, Lady Mary was already out of favor with the court, so Curl's publication couldn't do much more damage to her reputation. But she must have found it incredibly annoying and invasive and just plain rude. She'd never before sought out publication, preferring instead to circulate her works among friends and acquaintances, something Curl had disregarded completely because he wanted to make money. So, two days later, when Curl walked into a shop that Pope happened to be in, Pope let Curl have it. He berated Curl, letting him know he roundly disapproved of his underhanded dealings. And then Pope pretended that he had forgiven him and handed him a cup of wine as a peace offering. But as Pope later put it, quote, it was plain by the pangs this unhappy stationer felt soon after that some poisonous drug had been secretly infused therein. Pope had laced the drink with a powerful emetic, and Curl became violently ill. Then, to add insult to injury, Pope later published a pamphlet describing exactly how the drug affected Curl and his own delight at it. This tells us a lot about Pope's feelings for Lady Mary during these years. Lady Mary, for her part, was excited for the conversation and company that she found with Pope and his friends, but she made Pope giddy. He had never met anyone like her. She was funny, charming, beautiful, a gifted poet, and a great conversationalist. It seems like Pope fell head over heels in love with her. He professed himself her servant, quote, to some degree of extravagance in a letter he wrote jointly with her to a mutual friend, Lady Rich, and he really meant it. Much to Pope's dismay, on July 23, 1716, Lady Mary, her husband, and their son flew out the window that had been opened to them after the door at court had been closed. Edward took a post as ambassador to Turkey, and Lady Mary, astonishing everyone who knew her, went with him. Everyone thought it was much too dangerous, filled with pagans who would corrupt our author, but Lady Mary went and had the time of her life. New horizons were opened for her there. Perhaps most importantly, she was able to research the smallpox vaccine, which everyone received in Turkey, but that was still considered too dangerous by the English. She vaccinated her son in Turkey and would vaccinate her daughter, who was born during the 26 months she spent in Turkey after they returned to England, to show her countrymen and women that it was reasonably safe. Her campaigns for the smallpox vaccine in England were one of the big reasons that it eventually became a standard practice there, which meant that she was ultimately responsible for saving countless lives. This trip very much changed the nature of her relationship with Pope, though. His had been one of the loudest voices urging her to stay. It seemed to him almost like she was dying, especially since at this point it was unclear when, if ever, she would be returning. He begged for some of what he dramatically called her, quote, last moments before she left. But her long absence allowed him, in the letters he wrote to her during the 26 months she spent abroad, 
to open up about the nature of his feelings to her in a way that he would never have dared to otherwise. While Pope would often act the gallant with women of his acquaintance, paying them lavish compliments and making racy jokes in his letters to them, the letters he sent to Lady Mary were way beyond his usual light banter. There's something a little sad about these letters, actually. He liked playing the wild young man about town, what his age called a rake, with a few of his male acquaintance, but there's little evidence that he ever really had luck in the love or even the sex department. He was usually too self-conscious about his disease-ravaged body around women, and they seem, by and large, not to have seen him as a serious candidate for romance. It seems like since Lady Mary was gone and he had no idea when or if he would ever see her again, though, he allowed himself to act in his letters to her the way he must have wished fervently he could have in life. He writes her at one point that he wishes she could send him a Circassian slave and begs that she look in the mirror and pick a woman who looks just like her, except that, quote, if you please the colors a little less vivid, the eyes a little less bright. And he goes on to say, quote, take care of this if you have any regard to my quiet, for otherwise, instead of being her master, I must be only her slave. He fantasizes in another letter that Lady Mary will convert to Islam, which will leave her without a soul, because he believed that in Islamic belief, women were not thought to possess souls. He writes that he knows he will hear that on the first night that she reaches Constantinople, quote, you had a vision of Muhammad's paradise and happily awaked without a soul, from which blessed instant the beautiful body was left at full liberty to perform all the agreeable functions it was made for, which are obviously sexual ones. Of course, this is all just a pose. Pope didn't really want a slave woman, nor did he actually believe Lady Mary would convert to Islam. But that doesn't mean that he was also making up the sentiment that underlies the flirtatious tone of his letters, or that he wasn't hoping against hope that she would join him in his flirtation, which is what one of his letters seems to imply. It will probably not surprise you that Lady Mary did not play along. Her responses to him are quite cold, actually, mostly descriptions of what she's seen and experienced in her travels. Lady Mary's time in Turkey came to an end much more quickly than anyone had expected. Edward Wortley Montague was recalled back to England after a sudden shift of power in the government. They arrived back home in September 1718. The letters that Pope sent to Lady Mary in Turkey don't seem to have hurt their friendship for the few years after the Wortley Montagues returned, at least not in a way that made its presence known right away. She and Pope practically became next-door neighbors the year after they landed, in fact, mostly at Pope's arranging. Pope's beloved father had died suddenly, probably of a heart attack, on October 23, 1717, while Lady Mary had been in Turkey. His death had incited a major shift in the Pope family. Pope was now, at the age of 29, the head of the household, which meant he needed to care for his aging mother, who was 74 and not in the best of health. He spent 1718 searching for a place to build a new home for his mother, 
somewhere with salubrious air, but close enough to London that he could commute in easily if necessary. He settled on Twickenham and a plot of land that was bordered by the Thames River. Here, Pope threw himself into building a home that pleased not just his family, but everyone dear to him. He envisioned his little kingdom as a pleasure palace for friends, whom he hoped would come visit him whenever they pleased. The motto over the gate read, quote, more for my friends than for myself. The Wortley Montagues were invited to stay very early into his time there in early 1719. When Pope found out that they were looking for a rural retreat to complement their London homes, he pulled some strings and found them one very close to his own little palace. There, they were both able to pursue the very new craze in gardening. Pope's was especially breathtaking, with numerous hothouses for pineapples, which were still a rarity in 18th century England, a small vineyard, and big trees. He even built himself a little grotto, an underground chamber in his garden that became a real fixation over the years. This grotto might have become an obsession because it provided Pope with a welcome hiding place from a world that got a lot more frustrating, saddening, and scary during the 1720s. This was not an easy decade for either Lady Mary or Alexander Pope. Larger political issues affected both of their lives in heartbreaking ways. The first serious Jacobite rebellion had occurred in 1715. The son of the exiled King James II had gathered forces in Scotland and attempted to invade England in the hopes of ousting the newly crowned King George I. He and his forces had failed miserably but the rebellion had instilled panic in the hearts of the Whigs who had been largely responsible for bringing in George I to rule. The Whigs put in place a series of vicious retributions that lasted for decades and were mostly led in later years by Robert Walpole, the man who effectively ran the government for much of the next two decades. Tories were now all suspected of being secret Jacobites, and were all deprived of any real power in the government, many of them for completely tenuous reasons. One of Pope's friends, for example, was subjected to a penalty just for belonging to a family that had a history of Jacobitism. Pope had to watch as most of his Tory friends lost their posts in the government, which made him feel even more that he had no real say in how his country was being run, Catholics, of course, suffered the worst retributions. They were subjected to even heavier taxes, which were basically intended as reparations for costs incurred by the Jacobite Rebellion. These issues pulled the Catholic Tory Pope and the Protestant Whig Lady Mary even farther apart. It was especially difficult for Whigs and Tories to get along during these years, after the accession of George I, and the Jacobite Rebellion and its aftermath. Lady Mary admired the man whom Pope deemed a horribly corrupt monster, Robert Walpole, who was effectively the first prime minister. This was a difference in opinion that must have rankled both. Pope strove to maintain an even-tempered approach to the situation and hung on to friends in both political parties, but by and large, during the 1720s, everyone, including Pope, 
began to spend time mostly with other members of their political party, something that might sound familiar to Americans today. And Lady Mary had a particular and very understandable grudge to bear against the Jacobites. The life of her beloved sister, Lady Frances, had basically been ruined by a Jacobite, her own husband. Lady Mary's father had married his second daughter, who had been Lady Mary's closest friend and confidant, to a Scottish lord named Lord Mar. In 1715, Lord Mar had impulsively and, as it turned out, foolishly joined the rebellion, leaving his wife with her infant daughter and stepson in England. After the rebellion, he was branded a traitor and was unable to return to England. Eventually, after severe financial struggles, Lady Frances followed her husband into exile, where she lived a miserable existence, cut off from everyone she knew and forced to spend time with people whose political opinions she couldn't support. Lady Mary grew increasingly worried about her during the 1720s. Many of the letters she sent her were clearly meant to cheer up the sister she knew had always been prone to depression, a sister who now went long periods of time without writing her back. A poem Lady Mary wrote in 1724 called An Epistle to Mrs. Young vigorously defends an injured wife, Mrs. Young, whose bleak situation had become famous in such a way that seems to suggest how frustrated Lady Mary was by her sister's plight. This had all made her very lacking in sympathy for the plight of the Jacobites and even the Tories, something that must have especially bothered Pope when, in 1723, one of his dearest friends, Francis Atterbury, was given a completely sham trial and exiled for having aided the Jacobites. And these weren't the only issues troubling both during this time. Pope's illness began to flare up more and more strongly during these years, often leaving him incapacitated and miserable. He seems, too, to have realized decisively that, in spite of all the yearnings he had for romantic attachments, he was destined to lead a loveless life. Privately, he began to speak about it as a certainty to close friends, something that must have been very difficult for our poet. Many of his closest friends died during these years, and some, like Swift, traveled far out of his reach. His writing projects were also incredibly frustrating. After the translation of Homer's Iliad he composed in the late 1710s, he started on a translation of the Odyssey and an edition of Shakespeare's works, both projects that ran into many problems. The numerous personal attacks he was subjected to in the press, many of which made fun of his disabilities, were equally disheartening. Pope wrote little original poetry during these years, perhaps a sign of his mental state. He tried to distract himself with building and maintaining his house and gardens and by staying with friends as often as he could, but it didn't do enough. When he heard that a nephew of a friend shot himself shortly before Pope's 36th birthday, Pope used the incident to write a poem for his own birthday that tells us a lot about his state of mind in the 1720s. Here's how it goes. With added days, if life brings nothing new, but, like a sieve, let every pleasure through. 
some joy ever lost as each vain year runs o'er, and we all gain some pensive notion more. Is this a birthday? Ah, tis sadly clear, tis but the funeral of the former year. If there's no hope with kind though fainter ray to gild the evening of our future day, if every page of life's long volume tell the same dull story, Mordant, this is the man who shot himself, thou didst well. Lady Mary didn't fare much better. Her literary project of the decade seems to have gone much more smoothly. She polished the letters she had written during her time in Turkey during the first part of the decade, turning them effectively into a travel journal. And this, which later became known as the Turkish Embassy Letters, became the work that sealed her fame for posterity. But her marriage foundered, and she slowly withdrew from the society of most of her friends, of whom she exclaimed in a letter to her sister Frances in 1725, quote, All our acquaintance are run mad. They do such things, such monstrous and stupendous things. These years were full of one tragedy after another. Her father died in March 1726. She had barely seen him since her elopement, but impending death seems to have effected a change in him. Lady Mary said that he, quote, really expressed a great deal of kindness to me at the last. Then in June 1727, her youngest sister, Lady Evelyn, died suddenly. Lady Mary had never been as close to her as she had to Lady Frances, but she wrote to Frances that Evelyn had died, quote, in such a manner as made an impression on me not easily shaken off. And then two fresh catastrophes. Lady Mary's son, Edward, who was now a teenager and had grown into a rebellious youth, a young rake, as Lady Mary put it, ran away from his boarding school two weeks after Evelyn died. For months, no one knew where he was. It turned out later that he had joined the crew of a ship and sailed out with them into the blue, not to return until the next year, when the crew finally realized just who he was. And then, perhaps, the most painful occurrence of all, her much put upon sister and only living sibling, Lady Frances, lost her mind. She was brought home to England, as the newspapers put it, quote, so disordered in her head that it is believed she'll scarce ever recover her senses. Lady Mary, who blamed her sister's mental illness on the horrible treatment she had received from her husband, managed to gain custody over her and care for her, but the ordeal was almost too much to bear for her. It's likely then that when Alexander Pope fired his first volley against her during these trying months, she was too stressed out to think about it. By the time the feud began in 1728, both Pope and Lady Mary were tired and disillusioned and beat down by all of the problems they had faced over the last 10 years. Pope turned 40 that year, Lady Mary the next, and neither of their lives had gone quite the way they would have hoped. The feud seems to have started slowly, though there's a lot of debate over this. Pope's infatuation with Lady Mary seems to have lingered for some years after she came home. 
1720, Pope wrote a poem he sent in a letter to their mutual friend John Gay that claimed that joy dwelled not in his pretty Twickenham house, but wherever, quote, Wortley casts her eyes. She and Pope seem still to have been in the habits of exchanging their works during these years as well, but already, probably, they had begun to have difficulties. In 1719, a mutual friend had laughed over Pope's propensity to make really bad jokes in Lady Mary's presence. Possibly they were too racy, like the jokes he made in his letters to her. The friend wrote of Pope and this habit that, quote, you are so often reprimanded and never reformed. Perhaps Lady Mary was the one who was reprimanding him. Perhaps she had begun to express her discomfort over the form that Pope's infatuation for her had taken. And this might be something that eventually added enough tension to be part of what led to their break. This, in fact, seems to be what the most widely known story about the reason for the break between Pope and Lady Mary implies. Lady Mary's granddaughter claimed that the family belief concerning the impetus for the break was as follows, quote, when Lady Mary least expected what romances call a declaration, Pope made such passionate love to her as, in spite of her utmost endeavors to be angry and look grave, provoked an immoderate fit of laughter, from which moment he became her implacable enemy. There are a lot of suspicious aspects to this account. Firstly, the declaration itself. Pope, as far as we know, never made such a declaration to any woman ever, even women he was much more deeply in love with than Lady Mary. The thought of him playing the lover with Lady Mary in person is really difficult to believe. Also, this seems like exactly the kind of thing that Lady Mary would have used to mock Pope in some of her pretty vicious attacks on him, but she never mentioned anything remotely like it in any of them, or in personal letters to friends that discuss the incident. But the tenacity of Pope's hatred for her makes me inclined to think that this might be a misremembered, misunderstood echo of something that really did happen. Lady Mary must have hurt him in some unforgivable way for him to have vilified her as often as he did in print. Maybe Lady Mary did laugh at him in a different context, and maybe she laughed at him in such a way that made him feel self-conscious about his height or his disabilities. And there's another problem with the story. Both Pope and Lady Mary said later that Pope had backed off from his friendship with Lady Mary before he took offense with her. It seems that there had been a cooling off period and then in 1728, the first aggression by Pope. In 1722, Lady Mary had written her sister, Lady Frances, that she very seldom saw Pope. It sounds more like, at this point, they had simply drifted apart, though, not like they were already fighting. In 1724, Pope apologized to a mutual friend for neglecting his friendship with Lady Mary, promising he would, quote, endeavor for your sake to know more of her than perhaps I might otherwise do. Maybe they weren't close friends anymore by this point, but it doesn't really sound like there were any serious issues between them yet maybe at best a growing discomfort on Pope's part. 
There are so many theories about why these two writers ended up hating each other so much, and none of them are quite satisfactory. Some of them are just downright silly. One rumor claimed that Lady Mary had borrowed Pope's sheets and returned them unwashed, which had earned his undying enmity. Another, that Pope had gotten jealous of Lady Mary's friendship with the Duke of Wharton, a friendship that began in 1722. The timing is right, but it doesn't really make sense. Lady Mary had a lot of male friends, and of course she was married. Why would this particular friendship have broken Pope and turned him against her? Another rumor suggested that Pope had shown Lady Mary a poem on a woman with beauty but an unattractive mind, which had so offended her that she had composed a poem that ran, quote, had Pope a person, and in this case it means appearance, equal to his mind, how fatal would he be to womankind, but nature, which doth all things well ordain, defaced the image and enriched the brain. This story just sounds fake. And it doesn't come from a reliable source, so I doubt that this is actually something that happened. It doesn't help that the explanations that Pope and Lady Mary themselves offered don't quite explain the situation either. Lady Mary later claimed that when she had sent a mutual friend to ask Pope why he had stopped visiting her, he had claimed that she and Lord Harvey, a close friend of Lady Mary's whose bisexuality later opened him up for Pope's ridicule, had asked him to write a satire against, quote, certain persons, and that he had refused, and that this was why the breach between them had begun. Lady Mary explained that this hadn't happened, though, commenting, quote, I don't remember that we, meaning she and Harvey, were ever together with Pope in our lives. For his part, Pope seems to have believed that Lady Mary was responsible for several slanderous poems written against Pope in the mid to late 1720s. He thought she was writing these poems and then getting other writers to take the credit for them. Something that seems really unlikely, the poems don't really sound like her writing. But perhaps by this point, differences in temperament had created a growing unease between them. Maybe Lady Mary's assertiveness and independence, qualities Pope found less than ideal in a woman, had come to intimidate him. And maybe Lady Mary, for her part, felt uncomfortable around Pope because of the way he treated her. Maybe Pope had subconsciously been looking for an excuse to lash out at Lady Mary and put her in her place, and believing that she had written these poems provided him with just the excuse he needed. Or maybe she had hurt him in some way, maybe she even laughed at him, as the rumor implies, and he, never one to get over insults easily, had become convinced that these poems were another insult from Lady Mary to him. At any rate, in 1728, Pope had published a poem that both accused her, whom he named in the work, of writing these poems and of having gotten other people to take the credit for them and that also managed to insinuate that she had been sleeping with other men and had gotten her husband to take the credit for her illegitimate offspring. This latter insinuation seems to have initiated a whole slew of poems, written both by himself and others, that assumed that Lady Mary slept around and was therefore a bad woman. P. 
people believed this was true both at the time and up until very recently. But there's no evidence that Lady Mary had cheated on her husband by this point. People seem to have easily believed it of her through the ages simply because she was an assertive, adventurous woman. Later that year, Pope released the first version of what is probably my favorite poem of his, The Dunciad. By 1728, Pope, who was sick of the stupidity and fractiousness that surrounded him on all sides, and nowhere more so than in the writing business, wrote a mock epic on the, well, epic heights that Dunces had attained in his new world. He attributed these epic heights to the machinations of the goddess Dullness, a word that for Pope meant brainlessness and a plodding stupidity. He seems to have meant the poem as a ray of light to illuminate the error of these writers' ways, but of course it didn't work out that way. He wrote real people into the epic, people he depicted as the epitome of stupidity and venality in his world, which then, of course, earned him the undying hatred of all of those people. Of course, one of these people was Lady Mary, whose name appeared as an example of the kind of woman whom men accuse of giving them venereal disease. The poem incited a veritable paper war. Everyone felt the need to jump in and attack Pope for his own attack on other writers. Lady Mary jumped in with her own reply, but only circulated it in manuscript, presumably among her friends. But of course, Pope believed that Lady Mary had written many of the poems that came out, presumably because many of the poems attacked Pope for attacking Lady Mary. Pope swore he had seen one of them in a copy in her own handwriting, and when a mutual friend asked her about it, she told him she thought that Pope had made up the story as, quote, a contrivance to blast the reputation of one who never injured him. Pope seems to have become more than a little paranoid during these years, when, for example, he ran into Robert Walpole, whom he detested but who was Lady Mary's friend. He complained that Lady Mary had been libeling him all over town and warned him that she would certainly treat him the same way eventually. Pope wrote to a friend later of the incident that, quote, I should be sorry if she had any credit or influence with him, for she would infallibly use it to belie me. Of course, eventually, Lady Mary had enough. We don't know whether she wrote any of these earlier poems, but in 1729, she definitely did author a poem that attacked Pope on his own terms. This poem, co-authored with her second cousin, Henry Fielding, who would later write the novel Tom Jones, was a dunciad that savaged Pope's own circle. In 1733, Pope upped the ante. In this year, a very creative year for Pope, he inserted lines into several poems that were deliberately intended to damage Lady Mary's reputation. One poem addressed to an old friend of Lady Mary's criticized her husband, but a poem published later contained perhaps the most damaging blow yet. In this poem, Pope made fun of Lady Mary's bisexual friend, Lord Harvey, by nicknaming him Lord Fanny, and then moved in for the kill. Referring to Lady Mary as Sappho, 
a poet she had loved since adolescence and with whom she had always been associated, Pope, in a list describing how all creatures can use only those weapons at their disposal, bulls, their horns, asses, their heels, etc., included the following lines, quote, From furious Sappho, scarce a milder fate, poxed by her love or libeled by her hate. Syphilis was often referred to at this time as the pox, so he was insinuating, again, that Lady Mary would give her lovers venereal disease. He also characterizes her as an angry woman, though, ready to spread lies about men at any moment. In other words, she's every 18th century man's worst nightmare. The poem seems to have infuriated and hurt Lady Mary more than any other. She wrote a letter to a mutual friend asking him to find out why Pope had libeled her in such a cruel way. Pope played coy. Why on earth would anyone, and especially Lady Mary, assume that those lines were about her? Clearly they were about some street woman, not about her, obviously insinuating that since she had assumed they were about her, they must actually fit her. In response, Lady Mary let him have it. She partnered with her friend Lord Harvey, who had also been hurt by the recent poems, to write what is probably the most vicious attack ever written on Pope. This poem threw every possible criticism it could at him. He was of low birth, he didn't have an education, he hated everyone. The poem exclaims, To thee tis provocation to exist, the most hurtful criticisms are reserved for his appearance, though. They imply that his deformed appearance matches his inner self, saying, quote, But how shouldst thou by beauty's force be moved, no more for loving made than to be loved? It was the equity of a righteous heaven that such a soul to such a form was given. At the end, they curse him to be doomed to walk the land marked by his hunched back as Cain was by the mark on his forehead, a mark that brands Cain a murderer of his brother and that marks Pope as a murderer of people's reputations. Neither party got over this exchange. Pope wrote poems savaging Lady Mary and her reputation pretty consistently for the next five years. Lady Mary responded with poems that vilified both him and his friends, including one very funny poem insinuating that Jonathan Swift had written a poem depicting a young woman as a disgusting slob because he himself struggled with impotence. This and all of the other paper wars Pope fought in the 1730s must have gotten to him. In 1742, the 54-year-old Pope released a new and improved version of the Dunciad that imagined the whole world being gobbled up by the goddess dullness and being returned to the chaos from which it had been formed. It's, in my humble opinion, some of the most exhilarating writing ever produced by anyone, perhaps because it was filled with such deep conviction. After sinking over many years into a state of complete invalidism, the life that he had characterized as my long disease was over, two years after he published the last version of the Dunciad. Pope's poetry bears witness to what a kind, loving man he was with his friends. The age seems to have affected him as much as it affected everybody else, though. 
During decades when the press existed, it seemed largely to criticize, and when those with political power felt like they could hang on to that power only by terrorizing those who threatened them, Pope's pugnaciousness dominated his nature more and more. Lady Mary outlived Pope by 20 years. She continued to have an adventurous life almost until she died. She had a passionate affair with a Venetian man of letters 22 years younger than her, followed him to Italy, and there became the prisoner of a banditti-like figure named Ugolino Palazzi. But she never forgave Pope or his gang. In 1757, an English friend visited the 59-year-old Lady Mary in Venice. She showed him her clothes stool, an 18th century toilet, which had been painted like the backs of books by Pope and Swift. By this point, both writers were long dead and considered some of the most significant literary minds England had produced. She had known them well, she told her bewildered friend. As the friend later put it, quote, they were the greatest rascals, but she had the satisfaction of shitting on them every day. Thanks for tuning in this week. Tune in next Tuesday for an episode on Daphne du Maurier's obsession with her house, an obsession that spawned some of her most memorable works and was sufficiently strong to be called a case of house Ophelia. If you like the show, tell your friends about it. You can rate and review us on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. You can also tweet at us at inviolablepod or follow our Instagram feed at inviolablevoicespodcast. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Nadia Padilla. For more information on this episode, including the sources I used for my research, please visit my website at inviolablevoices.com. That's I-N-V-I-O-L-A-B-L-E-V-O-I-C-E-S dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell as many people as you can about us. You might also consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks so much and tune in next week for another episode of Inviolable Voices. Mm -hmm.